This is the Nietzsche Podcast. Hello, everyone. I am here with Mark Levine. And Mark, how are you doing tonight? Oh, I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, um, well, we have a similar sort of uh, background or backstory, you might say, that just, um, I guess, seems serendipitous when we um, kind of have run into each other online because you are very philosophically interested, well, to say the least, um, but also involved in the metal scene and in the heavy metal community. So we're kind of of a kind uh, in that respect. But to the people who don't know you or aren't familiar with your work, would you mind um, kind of telling everyone about your background, your journey through academia, how you became interested in philosophy and um, all of that? Sure. Well, I mean, I've been a musician, you know, since I was 13 years old. I've been a professional musician since I was 17 or 18. Um, I grew up listening, obviously, to metal, to rock. I'm older than you, I think. So I grew up in the 70s um, with, you know, classic rock, but really, what you know, listening to bands like Sabbath and Zeppelin. And um, as I started to reach adolescence and reading about them, uh, they would start mentioning things like this guy named Nietzsche or whatever I thought the name sounded like 40 years ago when I first saw it. And I was just becoming intellectually curious right at the time I was really becoming serious about playing guitar. And I happened to have a great, uh, an amazing English teacher in high school had a PhD in philosophy. And I told him about, you know, this person whose name I couldn't really pronounce. And he said, well, okay, if you want to read him, I'm happy to read him with you. So my first introduction of philosophy at 14 was reading Beyond Good and Evil, uh, the copy I still have and refer to whenever I need to. And, you know, it, it was like, I don't know how to describe it, except it was like a whatever a dose of ketamine must feel like it, that's what it was <laughs> to my brain to read Nietzsche as a 14 year old it just exploded open my brain and I was gonna say that I book it's like a bomb going reading, off yeah yeah it's literally like a bomb going off but it also has to be understood in the context of the music I was listening to because I think if you were in the 70s a real Zeppelin head you know a real Zeppelin addict you were into a kind of music that was the closest musical equivalent to Nietzsche that there was, because it was this kind of tight but loose, insanely powerful and original, yet really directed this kind of perfect combination of Dionysus and Apollo. And then to suddenly read an interview with Robert Plant where he says, well, we used to like to party, but now we just like to sit in our hotel rooms and read Nietzsche. I don't, I don't know if that was really true, but it certainly made it certainly changed my life to hear that. And that's really how the journey started. And so I went to conservatory for a year after high school, after, you know, really studying philosophy with this wonderful teacher and then went on tour for a few years. And when I went back to university and then grad school, I did a degree in religion and then uh, Middle Eastern studies. But it was always grounded in philosophy. So it was also, you know, reading the classic Western uh, modern philosophical canon, especially, you know, Kant, Hegel, Nietzsche, and then going into to Marx and that aspect. And as I went and did a PhD for 10 years, you know, it, it was really hard to do a PhD in the 90s and not go through Nietzsche because all of us were studying Michel Foucault. He was, you know, the god at that point. But uh, anyone who got into Foucault had to deal, you know, went through genealogy and the power of genealogy for anyone studying the Middle East then, when we were trying to break through these 
Orientalist stereotypes of Islamic history, and and you know create new understandings that weren't just tied to one linear Western narrative. Of course, Nietzsche's idea of genealogy, Nietzsche's critique of the Enlightenment, all of this was so powerful for us, just the way it was for someone like Foucault and all the other post-structuralist, so-called postmodern thinkers. So Nietzsche just was always there. He was a constant, always, and. Um, just stayed, you know, right to the present day as I've been working as a musician for 30 years, but also um, in the early 2000s when I was working a lot in the Middle East, I discovered the metal scenes in the Middle East and North Africa and were just blown away by how original they were. And they were emerging right at the time there was this new technologies of the internet and it's even more important of, of digital production you know, home studios, the fact that all of a sudden right. you could produce, distribute and consume music more or less for free. And for musicians, this was an incredible thing, especially in places like the Arab world, where there was a lot of censorship and such. And that brought me back to Nietzsche in a way, because it brought me back to the the kind of critical theory that I had gotten very into in graduate school which said that there was no way really for culture to be liberatory yet because of the structure of capitalism and so on. And they, these, these kids, these metalheads were showing me that this was wrong, that in fact we had to reevaluate the role of art in culture. And of course, where do you go when you want to do that? Where do you go when you want to think about art as a political, you know, as a, as a political weapon in a way, to me, you go, you go to Nietzsche first and then make your way forward again. So it's just always kind of like a spiral circling back to Nietzsche at some point. And yeah. that's where it's lasted, you know, right to the present day. Yeah. And I definitely, I want to get into a lot of these ideas with art being sort of at the bleeding edge of uh, sh shaping or reshaping or transforming culture. Um, and the very real power that Nietzsche thinks that uh, art might have. Um, before we get into a lot of that, though, I, I guess I want to ask, so you, you mentioned you were going uh, on tour um, when you were, how, how old were you when you first went on tour? 19. 19. How, and yeah. how was that? How was your initial experience of where, was this the uh, U.S., like West Coast? or? Oh, my initial experience was absolutely wonderful. It was me deciding to leave the safety of the conservatory because the artist said, yes, come with me on tour to Australia. So I was like, okay, I'm done with the jazz conservatory. And then right. uh, literally two days before, I was like, where's my tickets? And he said, call, uh, call the record company. I called the record company and said, who? Who are you? <laughs> what? No, no, there's no tickets for you. We don't have any money for you. You should never have listened to him. He's, he doesn't know how to say no. So that was my first introduction was thinking I was about to go on tour to Australia and then being told very rudely that, no, you're not going on tour with us to Australia. Oh, and then no. I had to just make my way in the New York, you know, the New York music scene. It turned out fine because in the end, I, I just, you know, dove into the New York music scene for four years and, and went to Europe, actually, and lived in Europe for over a year playing around uh, in Portugal and, and Paris and, 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 uh, and uh, the Netherlands and the UK. So it was a great experience. Ultimately, it all worked out fine. It introduced me to all kinds of musicians over there who are still my friends. And um, when I came back, and was still playing music, you know, this is in New York in the latter part of the 80s, the, there was this incredible scene emerging, which was mixing together really intense guitar-driven music, 
but also funk and also hip hop. And it just was this just such a unique place to be. You had jam bands like Blues Traveler and Spin Doctors together with, uh, you know, mm. Vernon Reed and Living Color and, of course, hip hop. So it was a great time to be doing doing music. But also I, I went to graduate school at NYU and and uh, it was a great combination, you know, graduate school during the day and playing at night. I could never could never ask for anything better than those years. Yeah, I mean that's the the you can only do that when you're in your twenties, right? I mean, uh, well, I'm still like kind of doing to, it now, actually. right? right. Yeah, but but I mean, doing grad right, doing grad school during the day and music at night—that yeah. sounds exhausting. I mean, was it hard to to find a balance there, or were you just so full of energy that no, and so happy to do it? I think even then it was clear that there was a really deep tie between the music that I was learning and playing and the philosophy and the you know the history and that i was learning and actually came together through what we could call praxis you know what what just this kind of you know deeply theoretically grounded uh political engagement and that was something that was always very important to me and of course again nietzsche you know nietzsche's critique of of christianity of christian morality of the enlightenment was so relevant to someone like me and it impacted the music because i think once you have a certain political awareness it impacts the way you approach music who you want to play with how you reach out to other musicians and especially as someone who was studying music completely outside my own original culture being middle eastern and african music it, it allowed me to approach it in a much more open and inquisitive and powerful way than most people i think who didn't you know, have that kind of academic grounding might have done it. So it was actually very synergistic. They just fueled each other, which means I didn't sleep for a decade, but that was okay when you're 20. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, um, as you're saying, it's like, I still, I, I would not be able to keep up with that schedule now, but at, at to some level, I think that having all of my time filled up with some creative or productive, affair is actually really it's actually a really nice thing um to have uh, very little downtime because then you never question did i use this day productively right and so absolutely I've, that, I've i think this every day every day yeah. like what, what is downtime and why do you need it what if i have downtime i'll just do music you know just for me i don't begrudge anyone who wants to play games or what video games or whatever but for me if i have downtime i would go read Nietzsche or Lao Tzu or, you know, or, like, you know, listen to some strange, you know, some strange new band from somewhere I never heard of, because that to me is, you know, the beauty of it is just the, the constant uh, chance to be creative and learn. So to me, it worked out. I don't know if it works for everyone. Obviously, that's why when I first heard your podcast, I was so excited to to meet you because like wow this guy's exactly doing you know we're doing the same journey down to the the music and the uh, and the philosopher that most drives us is yeah. the same so it seems like we should speak at some point yeah no it's it's very well and i have run into i've had people reach out to me just you know random fans from wherever they might be from who are, have kind of a similar there seems to be as you seem to have intuited some sort of, or, or maybe just sensed uh, some sort of link between heavy metal 
or if not heavy metal, particularly very intense and uh, transgressive forms of musical expression or aggressive, transgressive um, and Nietzsche, like the kind of people who are attracted to Nietzsche are also very attracted to forms of musical expression. I think that are like, I don't necessarily want to say avant-garde, but pushing the envelope of, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, not necessarily just being shocking to be shocking, but, you know, kind of pushing into new horizons of what's possible. And so I've, I've noticed that as well. It's like, I, I thought it might be a little weird when I first started the podcast for me to talk about my musical background and talk about um, some of my adventures and that whole uh, aspect of my life. Like, you know, what am I doing? I'm, I'm doing these hour long episodes where I'm just talking really in depth about these, this very wordy, you know, 19th century German philosopher. Is anyone going to want to hear about my heavy metal band? And then it turns out actually quite a lot of people are into this, um, those two things. So it, yeah, they seem to go together. Well, look um, at Nietzsche, think- look at who Nietzsche, you know, what is the music that Nietzsche loves and who was his first major influence? Obviously, Wagner's power to, you know, to express, to emote so powerfully. And um, I, never mind that what he came to, you know, resent and oppose about Wagner's sort of reconciliation with Christianity later, but the power of his music that it almost defied, it was just sublime in the true sense that was, I think, you know, if you're thinking of what's the closest to Wagner we have in contemporary music, it would be metal in yeah. some ways, at least at least the good parts of Wagner. And so I think it's not surprising that people who are really, and also people who are into metal are very thoughtful. You know, there's the idea of metal heads being, you know, these kind of air heads <laughs> with the big hair. And that was a very, that was a different metal. That's not even the same genre in a meaningful sense. And when I went to the Middle East, North Africa, it was really interesting. In the 90s, when, you know, Rat and Poison and Motley Crue were huge here, they weren't listening to that. They were listening to Cannibal Corpse, obviously Maiden and Purple and Zeppelin, but they were listening to Death Metal and Doom and, you know, Hard Thrash. You know, Metallica was almost too soft. Um, So there was, because that, because they literally lived lives that were, you know, what metal in some way offered as a as a fantasy as a catharsis in a way was literally what they were living right they were living in war zones they were living in dictatorships they were being bombed they were being tortured so this music meant something as as an iranian i was in tehran once and an iranian metalhead said you know you can't imagine how a music about death can affirm life and again, that like as soon as he said that, I remember that in his living room, it was like the eternal return. You know, you something needs to make you want to go through this over and over again, despite everything that happens. And it's the music. And so, again, it just wherever I go, somehow something Nietzsche wrote comes, you know, comes to mind when I'm thinking about music, this kind of music anyway. There's a couple directions I want to go with that. But so you've you've been over, you've spent time in the Middle East. Have you spent time in North Africa as well? Yeah. I mean, I started okay. off as a PhD student working in Palestine, Israel. Um, that was my first, that was when my dissertation was done, but I was also working in Egypt and Lebanon then. And, and uh, once the two, and also in Morocco. So really Middle East and North Africa, everywhere from Morocco to Iraq. I, once 9-11 happened and the U.S. invasion happened, I went to Iraq and I actually met the first metal band in Iraq that they did that documentary about heavy what, metal in Baghdad. What are they called again? 
across the cauda, which means okay. uh, black scorpion in, in the ancient Greek, I think, or the, whatever the original language is, not Arabic. But um, amazing guys. And, you know, their rehearsal space was bombed, right? Um, so wow. uh, it's just like, like for them, metal is life. As someone you know, said, you know, we play metal because our lives are metal, you know? And when you right. look and, you know, one guy held up a, a, an Iron Maiden cover and said, you know, with, with Eddie and, you know, dead, you know, skeletons and bombs and tanks, he's like, this is actually our life. Right. It might be a drawing for Iron Maiden fans, most of them, but not for us. This is real. This is what we live with. And, you know, to me, that's like as a, as a researcher and as a musician, how do you that's like a flame for a moth. Right. You can't you can't move away from that. So that's sort of what kept me going as I was, you know, as I was moving on in my career to keep looking at the music. And also the music had such political power and it, and it really and and had political power precisely as the kind of critique that Nietzsche, you know, taught us, you know, when, when we really delve deep into it, of this kind of modern uh, enlightenment project. And it did it in such a powerful way. And then even when I went further south in Africa, you know, into sub-Saharan Africa and started working there, also some absolutely incredible metal artists in places you wouldn't imagine, like Togo and Nigeria and Botswana, as well as, of course, many other kinds of music. But even there, you know, the, the power of art to just be a weapon and to and to absolutely tear apart the kind of ideological coverings. It really feels like that music sounds the way Nietzsche would have sounded if you heard him, you know, like doing a talk where he was reading his material. If you could feel the power of his words coming out of him it would sound like the music and that mm. that's to me you know what what drove me but uh the last decade i've been working mostly in sub-saharan africa but also still in the middle east so i wrote i guess you know if you're in the books the the book in 2008 was called heavy metal islam which was about you know the first book to really look at all these scenes around the muslim world and then last year i published the sequel to that called we'll play till we die um, with the University of California Press, and that was just the last 15 years since I published the first one, looking at the same artists in the same countries just to understand how these people have grown up since we first met when they were in their early 20s or teens, now they're in their late 30s, 40s. What does wow. the music still mean to them? What is the they've gone through revolutions, civil wars? You know, how does the music still how does the music still fit into their lives, and what is the role of art for them? as a means of political struggle. I'm wondering, so have you been to heavy metal concerts then in um, these other countries? And what is that experience like? Well, absolutely. Um, actually, I helped organize the first show in Cairo in 2008 in almost 10 years, because in 1997, there was a metal, a satanic metal scare. You know, we kind of had them here. But in the Middle yeah. East, when they have them, it's a little bit more serious when you have like the Grand, Grand Mufti of Egypt threatening to execute you for being an infidel. Um, so there were there were satanic scares, satanic metal panics in Iran, in Lebanon, in Egypt, then in Morocco in 2003. Um, and in Morocco, it was the first time ever um, the kids fought back and they organized concerts when they were prosecuting 14 metalheads for being Satan worshippers. 
They held concerts. They started an international campaign in French because, of course, Moroccans speak French like a mother language, or at least any educated Moroccans. So they were able to reach out through the Internet to the global francophone community, especially in France, and they won. And my God, you go to a metal, this, like the metal concerts in Morocco, like the festival, like the Boulevard Festival, you can get 100,000 kids, you know, over a couple of days. Mm. Like, and people are, they know their metal, you know, and they've had, we've had big bands coming to these shows and also, you know, in Lebanon and everywhere. But we organized this one in Cairo and, um, it totally forces you to change your view of everything. Even me as a PhD who worked in Egypt already for years, to go to a metal show and to see all these young women wearing hijab, you know, uh, headscarves, headbanging next to a, literally close, you know, as close as you can be in like a mosh pit with, with young guys who are not their brothers, you know, things that you just don't imagine should be happening, quote unquote, in the Middle East to have young women and guys headbanging together and, you know, it's just, it was amazing. And it was so liberating. And again, it was breaking down the, I, you know, the dominant way that even I was taught to think of what this region should be like. And in fact, it right. showed itself to be totally different. So that's why I think the music is so powerful because it, it forces you to see things you otherwise could ignore. And, uh, you know, isn't that what, what, what we're always reading, right? When we, when yeah. we read through some of this stuff. That's, so that that's sounds... for, so it's just everywhere. Yeah. It's just the kind right. the shows are amazing. You know, the, the scenes are amazing. Now they've spread, you know, now they're even place like Saudi Arabia, where there was really cracked down upon now has metal shows all the time, even in Iran, uh, not right now because of the, the protest the last half right. year, but in general, there could still be metal shows depending on the mood and, and who, who from the government was in charge of that town that day or whatever, but still just scenes everywhere with absolutely amazing musicians. And every single one of them was deeply intellectual, right? All these musicians mm. were deeply intellectual and they all were using music as a platform to do something else. And that's why, you know, when the so-called Arab Spring or the Arab Uprising started in 2010, even before that in Iran in 2009, all of these metalheads I knew, they were all on the streets. They were actually some of them leading these protests because it turns out the same skills it takes to create an underground metal scene happen to be almost identical to the scenes that the skills it takes to create an underground political scene. So you, it was just a very smooth transition for a lot of these musicians to becoming activists. And that was, of course, my journey too, right? Well, so, it, yeah, yeah, and I think it speaks to how you're talking about art as a cultural or political force that, that organizing kind of goes hand in hand, right? Because you can organize... Absolutely. Um, that sort of scene around a musical style, but then that becomes like a vector of um, vector. ideas. Um, yeah. So I'm wondering, this is so fascinating, the different scenes throughout the Muslim world and in mm. North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa, are there different um, aspects? Like when you get to know them, can you tell like, oh, this is a band from Togo or this is an Indonesian band? Like are there certain... Are there certain aspects of different scenes uh, of the metal Muslim world that That's you can like, kind of pick them out? 
That's a great question. Well, if you know the languages or you're at least familiar with them, obviously, although for the most part, the, the different, the biggest difference in the scenes is not really regional. Although just to say Togo, for example, there's a band in Togo called Arkan, A-R-K apostrophe A-N, I think there's an apostrophe somewhere. These guys are insane. I saw them in, in Ghana right before the pandemic started and they, they blend in traditional Togolese uh, rhythms on the traditional drums with really insane brutal metal and brutal metal singing as well and it turns out when you put together traditional African drumming like West African drumming with really hardcore death metal it's like it's like creating you know nitroglycerin or dynamite yeah that sounds amazing Ooh, it's absolutely amazing I would urge everyone to look at them but what, but the main difference, really, in all of these scenes outside of the, you know, the sort of so-called West, U.S., uh, North America, um, Europe, and let's say Japan, in these scenes, is for the most part, the first generation of musicians really wanted to play metal in the classic way. So their goal was to sound like uh, Cannibal Corpse or Napalm Death or Maiden or what have you. You know, they just wanted to get it down. They would sing in English. They cookie, you know, cookie monster vocals, so to speak, you know, the brutal vocals, but in English, they would uh, right. really try to get it. You know, they were trying to master this genre. But then beginning really in the early 2000s, you started seeing bands that started mixing together local styles, local instruments, even with, with the, you know, hardcore extreme metal. And that's when it got really interesting, because, again, as a scholar, what I started realizing and this, I think, would be really interesting for you. This is when it all clicked for me about metal in this region is if you go to some of these kind of ceremonies, if anyone's ever been to Morocco, like a Ganawa music in Morocco, the, the trance music of Marrakesh, or if you go to what they call a czar ceremony in Egypt, which is a kind of exorcism that you can see and that people do because it's just part of their traditional religion. And you go there and you hear the, the beats and you see people literally rhythmically headbanging. I mean, they're literally headbanging. Right. They're doing the exact mm -hmm. they're moving their heads in circles or they're moving up and down and shaking, plus giant, heavy, fast rhythms. This is metal. Right. This is metal. And in fact, I've had them say, you know, this is the same thing. When I when we hear this, we know what the roots are. It's that rock, the scales that it comes from. All these are actually rooted in these in Africa and also in Islamic modes and scales that went up to Europe and became precisely the modes that are most associated with metal, the Phrygian, the Locrian modes, the minor modes, the harmonic minor. These are all directly equivalent to Arabic Islamic modes. So for, for those guys, you know, for people coming from there, when they hear metal, it doesn't sound foreign to them. It sounds like it's mm. music coming home, right? And so yeah. that's why. So when you hear it in the Middle East, like, oh boy, now I get it. Like this is, this is not some foreign thing that's been indigenized. This is home. You know, this is the indigenous music as much as anything else. That's really cool to to suddenly feel that because then the power of the music, you know, goes. It's like you went from one ten to two twenty volt. You know, attenuator. You know, on an amp, just psh, turned it right up to the full full blast the power yeah. just gets much greater yeah it's funny because i there's bands like nile right who are i mean they're just a bunch of dudes from virginia mm. or wherever they're from but i i've i've kind of i guess intuitively known that that the, a lot of the scales and modes that come out of the middle east 
they just really naturally fit into um, a metal, like a, especially an extreme metal context really Absolutely. easily. So it's really Absolutely. neat to see people from the region incorporating that. And also, you know, like if you look at the history of rock and roll coming out of the blues and various forms right. coming even from like Afro-Caribbean styles, I mean, it's the percussion of West Africa is like in the DNA of American music already. So it's kind of interesting. And, and the, you know, blues, blues comes from the call. I mean, there has been some amazing work, but it's very clear that the, the main notes of the blues, the blue note is the Arabic quarter tone. And that Arabic quarter tone coming through the Islamic call to prayer, which was all throughout West Africa. So the whole, you know, genealogy, if you will, to use the language of the podcast, of, yeah. of kind of the blues and the blue note comes largely from, we know it's from Muslim West Africa because the, the, the more coastal peoples of West Africa, like let's say Ghana, Nigeria, Liberia, Angola, Cameroon, all those people where so many of the people were kidnapped and enslaved, the coastal peoples have more of a pentatonic music, you know, for those of mm. you listeners, but I know you know what I mean. But once you get to the little bit north away from the coast to what we call like the Sahel, where it starts getting a bit drier, where it's Muslim, then of course their music uses much more of the scales that are the Islamic scales. So the call to prayer, if you listen to a call to prayer and you listen to the old field hollers or the early blues, it's almost identical. So we know right. the roots are deeply Islamic. And then just one more thing, if we think of who's the godfather of metal guitar, you know, most people would probably say Dick Dale, right? Um, you know, the great Dick Dale. I mean, who, who yeah. can forget Dick Dale? Well, Dick Dale's actual name is Richard Mansour. He's Lebanese. He grew up playing oud. I didn't know that. And, 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 yeah, he, his father owned a Lebanese restaurant. He grew up playing oud in a band with his father, and he took the technique, the rapid-fire picking techniques, and those kind of minor, you know, one, flat, two, flat, three sounds. He just transferred them to a guitar and turned it up to 10, and then you got surf guitar. But he, I've ta I talked to him about it. I got to meet him a couple times. And, yeah, he, oh, so, wow. I mean, literally metal comes from, you know, yeah. in every direction you look, it goes back there. So it's, you know, it's not at all foreign to them. It's in, it's yeah, his riffs are completely. Middle Eastern. And now that but I'm thinking were, about it. Yeah. Well, his yeah. most famous song is called Miserlu. Miserlu actually means Masr, is the, is the Egyptian Arabic term for Egypt. So, I mean, literally, even his famous hit was, you know, named after Egypt, even though he was Lebanese, never mind. But still, we get the point. You know, it's just so suffused with this music everywhere, everywhere you look. You know, it's just all yeah. there. Never mind bands like Zeppelin or other bands who started directly going to Morocco or going to, you know, going to India or going to places where or Egypt and, you know, literally studying the music, which, of course, was very attractive to them because they were already attracted to that, those sounds and those notes. And most importantly, I think that energy, yeah. you know, that energy. And you wouldn't imagine Led Zeppelin wouldn't be saying, yeah, we sit around and we read a bit of Descartes or Kant, right? That wouldn't make sense. <laughs> it's not going to be... Why would they read Kant? No, they'd read Nietzsche. If you're going to read a 19th, you know, a modern philosopher, that's who you're going to read if you're in a major that's, rock. Yeah, world. reading Kant, you're really done partying at that point. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I don't think I've ever heard a musician actually bring up uh, bring up Kant. Uh, no, I'm polite company anyway. He's not a very musical writer like Nietzsche is. No. Um, oh my god. 
So you've talked about, like, you know, uh, for example, the band from Iraq, their practice room getting bombed. Mm. And um, I, I can only imagine that in some of these regions, things like power on, or the grid might not be as reliable. Are, are there some like roadblocks having organized or like, you know, been in this scene? Is it more roadblocks than it is to setting up a show in, you know, the West or Europe or America typically? Or just the well, challenges, the things that occur? Is, sure. The first roadblock is still uh, in many countries, especially like Egypt. Um, you know, a lot of times they they don't want you, they don't want people to play uh, metal. So you might have a show and then they'll try to cancel it. Or if you do a metal show, there might be five on, you know, five uh, so-called plain clothes security guys. Everyone knows by their mustache and their cheap clothes what they are. But so that you can spot them a mile away, but you know they're there to see if you do anything that they, you know, say anything that they don't like, which is one of the reasons, by the way, people love, uh, for example, in hip hop, people know what you're saying, right? When you, unless you're doing like mumble rap, the current favorite thing, but it, when you're, you know, when you're rapping, it, you're supposed to be clear so people understand you. But if you're singing brutal, right, no one's going to know. Some security guy right. who can barely speak English isn't going to have a clue. So you could be saying almost anything you want and get away with it if you're singing it brutally. So, you know, metal, it's so confusing to those kids that you can get away with it, but they also know that something's not, that this can't be too kosher or halal, as they might say. So right. it's always being monitored. So definitely doing metal, you're always going to have some monitoring in most countries. Lebanon, no, because that's much more liberal. Uh, Dubai, no, but, you know, Morocco, more or less, no. But certainly Egypt, or Jordan, or Saudi Arabia, or other places, uh, certainly in Iran, they will keep an eye on you. You don't have things like, you know, power outages normally, but now you do, certainly in places like Lebanon, where there's been such a horrible situation with the power and the electricity and, and fuel there. But that's not always typical. But the, the main, I, I think, I think the main thing is just the constant assault as a persecuted subculture. After a while, people just as they get older, a lot of people tend to grow out of the metal scene. Uh, I think maybe a bigger percentage than you would see here, not because they don't like it, just because they, it just, they too much trouble. It's just too much trouble and you move on. So the scenes have kind of shrunk in the last five or six years in a way, sadly, in, in many countries. Whereas in other countries like Saudi Arabia, they've gotten bigger because they were so repressed and now they're letting them now they're letting them play. So uh, it really depends. And in a place like Iran, which had one of the strongest metal scenes in the world, after the huge crackdowns of the last 10 years or 13 years now, a lot of my friends in that scene left. And so people I met in Tehran now I see and hang out with in L.A. all the time because they live here. Uh, mm. in, you know, what we call Tehranjalis in this area. So exile is a big problem for some musicians. You know, they just... They can't take it, especially if they combine music with politics. Eventually, they're either jailed or worse, or they leave. So that that's certainly an, an aspect too. Yeah, yeah. And you've, in speaking of uh, those musicians coming here, you've organized some yeah. events, including one in South by uh, here in Austin, Texas. Um, yeah. Would you I mind talking you. about that a, a bit? Well, you know, well, the first thing I can say is South by is certainly something every musician should experience.
experience once. I don't know about twice, but <laughs> once. <laughs> I wish I could um, stop experiencing it personally. I know, I know. But it every comes every year awesome. whether I want it or not. Yeah, but hopefully you rent out your, your house for like 10 grand or something. Well, <laughs> as, as we're recording this, I'm actually, South By is coming next week. So oh, I, I only have two events. Uh, all my bandmates have multiple events and all oh right you're a musician you can't leave that's too bad yeah no, unfortunately it was really yes. fun i have to say that when my book heavy metal islam came out in 2008 i was invited by south by to organize a heavy metal islam night um for the 2009 festival and it was really great and i brought in some bands i brought in this band i worked with called lazy wall from morocco from tangier and we had another another metal band and then a couple of hip hop bands, a Palestinian hip hop band from Gaza and this incredible Pakistani um, hardcore band called the Kominas, uh, who had a, a hit of sorts at the time with a song called Sharia Law in the USA, which was just a big F you to kind of, you know, right wing America by just talking about we're going to have Sharia Law and then you're all going to be in trouble. But these guys were in reality, the complete opposite. They were saying that over a hardcore song. It was an amazing night. They put us somewhere way far enough away from 6th Street that you needed an airplane to get there, get back to 6th Street. And they scheduled a secret, a so-called secret Metallica show just at the time our metal show was happening. So that kind of hurt attendance, but it was still a great opportunity. And, uh, you know, it, it, it was it was great for the artists to feel like they were part of a global musical ecumene at that moment, which was exactly, I think, if there's one good thing about festivals like, um, you know, like South By and um, I'm trying to think of some of the other ones they used to have in New York, the big college, college radio festival. It was just all these bands coming from everywhere. Um, yeah. And this was still when you can get a visa relatively easily and cheaply, of course, as we were talking about a few days ago, that that's gotten much harder and is going to, I think, have a big impact on the yeah, ability going up, of artists to get here. Going up 3x in, in price, uh, according it. to the yeah. State Department, something something like that, which, yeah, um, it's as somebody who's toured internationally, um, and that's, you know, me as an American going to Europe, it's probably not even a tenth as hard as somebody from Morocco or Egypt coming here. But uh, it's expensive enough. If if I had to pay an exorbitantly expensive uh, um, artist visa in addition to that, um, I, I mean, it just wouldn't be doable. Um, and that's probably going to be the reality for a lot of bands in the wake of this, unfortunately. Um, but I, I think it's very it'll... hard. It's very hard, yeah. and I think a lot of bands they won't even come as artists. But then they won't even you know if you're Egyptian, young Egyptian guy, twenty one year old Egyptian guy. They're not going to give you a visa to come to the U.S. anyway, unless you get an artist invitation. But then when you go for an artist invitation, you got to pay the artist visa fee. So it's like, you know, yeah, if you're European, you just come as a tourist visa and you, you know, do whatever you do. But if you're coming from countries where they don't normally like to let young men into the United States, unless they're, you know, from the Saudi royal family or something, uh, then, you know, then you need the visa and then you have to have that money. And, you know, I told you... 15 years ago or 13 years ago, it cost the band from Morocco $14,000 to come and play there uh, just to get there. And now it probably costs 20 something. And who can afford that? You know, if you're in a metal band, probably you don't have that much money. And 20,000 right. is like you know, either bring your band to play in South by or build a house. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. That's uh, not, a, not a good choice to have to make. 
Yeah, I um it, it's it's going to end up hurting us in America though because I mean, I guess, like you say, for a lot of like the European artists, it probably won't be as big of a problem. But there's just pl- lots of acts from around the world that um, people just won't get to see here. It'll just make less uh, touring acts want to come through here because I've already seen hmm. bands from Europe also be. It is already very hard on them or harder. It's harder on them to come over and tour here than it is for us to go over there. Um at least in terms of the distances are way longer here. They're spending way, mo- way more money on gas. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, our cities are not uh, set up in as friendly of a manner um, as some European no, cities absolutely are. Not. Um, so, and also, you know, people don't see, you know, most look, I discovered, I didn't even know there was metal in the middle East after I, until after I got a PhD, I had been traveling around the region for, you know, a decade already, but I was always looking for quote unquote traditional, you know, music. Cause that's what I thought I should learn and listen to when I was there. And it turns out there's all these metal and rock scenes that I just never even heard. And, so, but okay. But it's cause I was always over there that I learned about it. But if, if, these if these bands don't get a chance to come here how are people ever going to even learn about the music unless they're really lucky or really you know into it like let me look at a global metal thing which is easier now to do than it used to be because band you know uh, magazines and stuff deal you know will have features about the global metal scene and there's you know documentaries and so on but you can't there's nothing like seeing a band live right and it's just really sad i don't know why our government would do that uh yeah it, well, it's, it's a are. strange it's a strange time because you could definitely have exposure to bands from all over the world playing all different sorts of music and they might just have their album on youtube or on spotify or um you know on a band camp page or any number of things mm. um but mm. then because there's just so much there's a whole world of music out there um you you kind of have to be like a music nerd to be going, you know, I, I, I kind of hate the designation of world music is what people just, you know, mm. because it's like implies, mm. well, there's music in the US and the West and Europe or whatever. And then everything else is just the music of the world, right? right. Um, it, it, it's kind of a silly right. like yeah. title in and of itself, but it's like that shows you that automatically we've kind of taken like the whole global music scene and like stuffed it into this one category you know it it shows that there's not as much of an interest for it over here um it's really the people who are really dedicated to finding new musical experiences which and i know they're out there i've i know some of them i am one of them sure right but you know what did nietzsche what what did he say in in the gay science i know he said in the gay science about music he's like what do we have how do we make things beautiful right how do we make them desirable when they're not right the the it's always through art it's through music especially music and and in a world that is under so many threats where there's so much conflict and violence everywhere you know if you want beauty you know you're gonna where are you gonna find it first and foremost in music even music that might sound to the uninitiated ugly it's still it's still you know or deliberately not want to sound what we what most people describe as normatively harmonious or melodious it's still beautiful for people who like it even if it's dissonant and angry and and that's what makes us human right and and if you don't have the chance to do that in person with people i always think when when nietzsche was writing about wagner you know he knew he could go sit at wagner's house right when when theodore adorno you know one of the founders more or less of the frankfurt school 
you know, decided that Schoenberg, you know, was his, you know, the person whose music, this kind of 12 tone, very dissonant music, something to me that very, sounds very much like, you know, metal avant lettre, so to speak. Um, you know, he could go see him. He studied with him. You know, there was there, there was a, pr a physical presence of hearing this music. And now we've lost that completely with the digital way of listening to music, which has liberated in some ways. But also, if you still can't be there in person, how do you really feel the connection to the artists and to the music that some of these great philosophers who so loved music were able to have? Uh, going back even to the, I... the ancient Greeks, right, who, who were literally... There were no, there was no Spotify or anything. You had to be there listening to the guy play the lyre or the flute or the poetry. It was all done right in front of you. So that's, I, that's I had that. Moment. Yeah. I had that thought um, during the kind of COVID years uh, and mm. in the time coming out of it, that really wondering, I've talked about this a little bit on the podcast because it's kind of what the podcast came out of was it was during a period when I was like, I don't know if live music is is going to come back the way it was um, or if it's going to get, you know, maybe people have lost their appetite for actually seeing music in person. Um, maybe that there will just not be that kind of market for that unless you're like a really huge band. Um, because I mean, at the mm -hmm. beginning, you know, those, the 2020, so many music venues closed down music venues that have been around in Austin for 20, yep. 30 years. I, I mean, that's a, that's oh a trend God. that's been going on for a while here. But it, 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 you know, it was like the straw that broke the camel's back was 2020. And a lot of them that had hung on for a long time just disappeared. And so I, I had kind of wondered about that. But maybe, you know, as he brought up um, Adorno and, and sort of the Greeks, you know, alluding to the Greek tragedy, maybe this is a good jumping off point to get into the sure. philosophy element, because mm -hmm. that transgressive aspect of the music, like you were saying, something that isn't conventionally or normatively beautiful, um, I often think of um, how I've heard people describe um, music in the doom scene. Like they'll call a rip. They'll be like, that's stupid, disgusting. Right. And they mean a that's a compliment. Sense. Yeah. yeah. Uh, or or that uh, that sounds horrifying or that uh, yeah. that's torturous. <laughs> you know, yeah. all sorts of uh, you, if you read music reviews of extreme metal and the kind of language they use to describe yeah. a lot of uh, um, albums, it kind of might boggle your mind if you're not familiar with the metal scene but thinking about you know the greek tragedy the way nietzsche described it as like this confrontation with you know um the tragic hero being rent asunder and torn apart like you're creating an image of the individual being destroyed um dissolved ripped apart back taken back into the bosom of nature right this uh, primordial pain and contradiction of nature and yes, exactly. it, it's it's but and yet at the same time it's a liberatory elevating beautiful it's a unity of terror and beauty and so i've definitely gotten that in metal over the years um but it's interesting because nietzsche perceives isn't that, that nietzsche thinks, and, and isn't that how he how he engages the whole idea of mimesis and his understanding of it is, is he's kind of taking a different direction let's say from aristotle um, who, you know, saw Mimesis in a positive way, unlike Plato, but as something natural and something um, that, that was good and could produce joy. But Nietzsche, Nietzsche sees also the conflict inherent in it and how important, how cathartic this kind of art that you're talking about, going back to the tragedies, what, what an important role they play. But it's, 
but it's not just that they play this cathartic role that they allow you to experience horror and awe at a kind of somewhat safe distance. So that's so you're seeing a copy of it rather than the original. So you can't it's not like you're seeing someone really be slaughtered on the stage, for example. Something about Nietzsche, and please correct me if I'm wrong, because I've listened to you talk about this on pod, on your podcast and you know it so much better than me, but my understanding of it, you know, Nietzsche's understanding of Amesis is coming out of his reading, especially of I think Darwin and his idea of um you know that that mimesis was kind of a natural a natural process in nature really got nietzsche to to separate this idea of mimesis out from just copying you know just the way the greeks thought of it to also be something well if this if mimesis is something natural then maybe what humans are doing has a more political or it can be a bit more yeah more political rather than just aesthetic and then he starts thinking about it as a way of critiquing you know how the weak you know copy the strong or as a way of ingratiating themselves or or somehow you know sneakily uh, sneakily critiquing them or at least gaining power over them i think how he talks about christianity as well and this whole you know and beyond good and evil between good and bad and good and evil and the weak and i think that that idea of of catharsis and and of mimesis becomes really important for the Frankfurt School, for example. Um, yeah, and could you speak to a bit of that because, or the Frankfurt School and their whole background for the listeners who are not as familiar? Because that's not as much in my wheelhouse. I've I've done a little bit of reading in preparation for this, but um, it also might be something that a lot of the audience isn't familiar mm, with mm, that whole mm. movement. Well, I mean the Frankfurt school is is the school for social research is the real name that was founded in frankfurt in the early 1920s this is in you know during the weimar republic it's after world war one it's a group basically of largely jewish but not entirely uh marxist thinkers who are already starting to be uh alienated from the kind of dogmatic marxism that's starting you know that's taken root in the soviet union and um and also, at the same time, they're seeing this new ideology and this new political force called fascism really rise so quickly in Germany. Same thing happens in Italy, right at the moment where everyone thought the conditions were right for Marxism to, or socialism at least, to to really take root and have a shot at, at transforming the world, you know, transforming certainly the political economy of, of a in, of a modern industrial country like Germany. And instead, fascism just sweeps right by it. And and the working class basically turn towards fascism instead of towards socialism. And they're trying to basically understand why is this happening? Like, it, because according to the dogmatic Marxism of the day, once the condition, the material conditions were right, then uh, naturally workers would see that they're all in the same boat. They would join together, maybe with a vanguard leading them. And, you know, as they say in Canada, Bob's your uncle, and there would be a revolution, and, and then you'd have socialism or communism uh, take over. But that, of course, doesn't happen. People instead turn to fascism. And they were trying to figure out, just like Antonio Gramsci was trying to do at the same time in Italy, why? And they came to this idea that it had to be in the cultural realm, which was a very big leap for people who were Marxist to suddenly say the so-called superstructure culture is really where this struggle is happening and we need to learn more about it. And in order to do that, 
they really brought together three, three, um, three figures. They brought together Marx, of course, but also Nietzsche and Freud. Freud being very influenced by Nietzsche in certain ways. And it was the th those three thinkers together that shaped this idea that the Frankfurt School started developing about why people would, whose economic interest was to have a much fairer, more egalitarian, what might be called socialist society would instead become very closed-minded, become very violent, and basically look to this, you know, this this completely bizarro world version of Nietzsche's idea of the of the Ubermensch, of the Overman, you know, the kind of fascist figure. And that's why so, Nietzsche was so important to them, because they saw his critique of the Enlightenment. They saw his critique of modernity, his critique of capitalism, which I you did a great podcast on once. Um, as very similar to theirs, but he also he also helped provide, you know, the, the tools, the the weapons to really poke holes in this ideology. So he became very important for a lot of the early Frankfurt School thinkers. Yeah. So the 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 Marxist, um, we, we would say probably most Marxists at this time, but definitely the Marxist Leninists are are on this kick of scientific socialism. Everything mm -hmm. is material conditions. Everything is materially driven. And as you mentioned, the term superstructure, that culture is just sort of like uh, the way Nietzsche talks about sort of like the intellectual world or the um, the true world, right, is something like layered on to the actual physiological, physical embodied right. reality. Um, and so I've always kind of seen that like parallel with Nietzsche but the, and, and the Marxists. But the interesting thing is that Nietzsche does have this theory of culture to some extent he talks about it in genealogy of morality mm -hmm. um uh, or it's one of the best examples of how you yes you do have this uh morality or this what would you say orientation toward the world this perspective on the world that comes out of who and what you are and what your power position is where you are in the um power or class dynamic or whatever it might be but then if you want to call it a superstructure or whatever you know nietzsche obviously doesn't use that term you know, you create the superstructure of Christianity that comes out of the Christians in the late Roman Empire. Late Roman Empire collapses. Christianity is still there. So, right. and then to say that Christianity was just sort of a cultural superstructure that was simply an effect and not a cause throughout the next 2000 years of Europe is a really overextended position, I think, because well, it's, it's very clear Marxist that a lot of things. Right. Um, well, could you expand on that? You see. Well, I mean, Marx. Okay, yeah. Marx is, had a Marx himself had a much more nuanced and and clear-eyed, in a way, understanding of the power of culture. He said, you know, the, the material conditions in the last instance are determinative, and I think we could all agree that yes, if there's a major change in the technological grounding of a society, that's going to transform everything else. So the change from feudalism to capitalism, with the rise of industrialism and the rise of new kinds of trade and stuff, these changes in material conditions clearly profoundly affect everything. But that doesn't mean there's not a feedback loop, and that doesn't mean that culture, you know, we're st it's still capitalism, still run by people, and people shape. The world and the and the arrange the uh, arrangement of forces and in the society and so culture is absolutely very crucial and Marx even said himself he said music or art he said in I think it was the economic and philosophical manuscripts he said uh, art is actually its own mode of production that's how important it is right so he knew 
how important art and culture was and that you can't ever just think about any inevitable transformation just because there's a transformation in the economic basis of the society. And Nietzsche, what's really important here and where Nietzsche comes in, I think, and why Nietzsche is so close to Marx in many ways, if not Marxist-Leninism, which is a very different thing, kind of like Christianity versus Jesus. Very different thing, right? Um, what he realizes and um, is that um, and this is what the very important for the Frankfurt School too. His perspectivism, his critique of truth, his critique of certain values, his critique of kind of the whole Dick Cartesian Kantian idea of some kind of objective, uh, metaphysical, you know, metaphysically real world and standards out there. That you know, his his critique of that idea that was you know his goes to his critique of Kant and the categorical imperative and and critique of just the idea of objectivity, of science, of rationality. He saw already why that was, you know, an erroneous claim. And he saw already how it would help uh, alienate, right? And I think he even used the term, I can't think of the German right this second that he used, but I think he uses the same term or something very close to the, the alienation to describe what happens to workers and everyday people because of these processes. And so for, because of that, and because of his critique of the idea of an objective truth that can be referenced, he becomes absolutely crucial, of course, for existentialism, for postmodernism, for post-structuralism, but before any of them, he becomes crucial for the Frankfurt School, developing this idea of a critical theory, which is a theory that is engaged to try to make the world a better place, to try to figure out how do we stop fascism? How do we stop a bureaucratic rationality that takes drains all the life out of humanity? How do we fight this? Because we can't just wait for a different mode of production. We can't just wait for the workers to unite. There has to be, we have to be involved, engaged on the ground. So culture is crucial. Nietzsche gives us the tools to understand why and also reminds us that whatever you're going to do you have to center it around art and artistic so, creation so um is that the the nietzschean sort of critique of the absolute perspective or um mm -hmm. uh, absolute or immaculate perception we might say um like is that what we, we would call the evacuation of reason that some of the people in the critical theory um, milieu kind of actually criticize about Nietzsche? Well, you know, it's really strange you mentioned that because also when we think about critical theory and we think about the Frankfurt School, there's kind of two generations. There's the generation of the founder, so to speak, and the three most important figures, there are others, but the three most important would be Theodore Adorno, Max Horkheimer, and Herbert Marcuse, who came to the, they all came to the US for a time, but Marcuse, during the war, Marcuse stayed and became a very important figure in the new left here in the 60s. Um, but for them, it wasn't an issue. But then you have the second generation people like Jürgen Habermas, who, who, who do start to, they see this problem that they think exists in Nietzsche. Personally, I didn't. And they see the Frankfurt, they see their their immediate generation before them, uh, uh, the Adorno, Horkheimer, Marcuse generation of not of not understanding that this kind of perspectivism, you know, you can't just in order to critique reason, at some point you have to have some kind of truth that is the standard in which you're critiquing the fact that there's no truth. Otherwise, the whole thing just 
there's there's no way to judge anything and and there's no point in even attempting this ex enterprise this exercise so they see this as a problem with nietzsche that then gets picked up by the Frankfurt School. But, you know, I don't, I think that's wrong. I think that it's a misreading. I think if you go back to Nietzsche, all the way back to his first writings about Heraclitus, why he loved Heraclitus, which I think is really a, a really interesting thing, which I had forgotten about until I listened to one of your podcasts, in fact, um, and, and oh, cool. of, of, every, of how, you know, how constant change, how the fact that nothing is fixed isn't a limitation. It actually opens up a whole new way of critiquing and not of critiquing of creating and i think the first generation of the frankfurt school saw that but the problem was that because they saw there was nothing really fixed a lot of the first generation became scared to actually get their hands dirty especially after world war ii they really felt like you know what when we tried to engage in some kind of praxis based on our, our best understanding of what was happening in the world, we literally got slaughtered by fascism. And it's too risky to go out there until we've really figured out exactly how the system keeps co-opting and redirecting every kind of liberatory energy. Um, whereas, you know, other people, I think, felt more competent to, or they felt we had no choice. You know, you have to fight the war with the army you have, as, as, as someone said. So they just kept trying to take Nietzsche's insights, Nietzsche's critique and say, okay, let's just keep applying it. Let's just keep trying to critique the system, but, but also create. And I think it's Nietzsche's, even if people don't quite understand or disagree with some of his more fantastical ideas of the overman and everything, it was his willingness to keep trying, you know, to do what you did and do it again, even if it leads to the same endpoint to just keep going and keep trying is the energy that motivated critical theory and motivated critical theory into, into the, you know, after World War II, motivated it until it morphed into the new left here with people like Angela Davis, who actually studied with Adorno and Marcuse, and of course is so foundational to uh, any kind of liberatory thought and motivated it also globally in the Arab world. Nietzsche, for example, is really important in the Arab world as a, as a source of energy for any scholars who are trying to break free of an older, more sclerotic or, you know, frozen system. Nietzsche is who they turn to, right? How, so I think how is Nietzsche, energy. how does Nietzsche interact with uh, Middle Eastern philosophical thought? Uh, obviously, it's in dialogue with the long philosophical traditions of Islam, but I'm just wondering, you know, like you take an element of that's sort of completely outside of that whole tradition, like Nietzsche, kind of pluck him out of the Western canon and throw him into Middle Eastern thought. Um, just from what you know about it, how, are there any interesting ways that Nietzsche sort of throws light onto the philosophical traditions, some aspect of them or clashes with the Middle Eastern thought? You know, there's there's two different there's two very different traditions we're talking about. One would be the the religious philosophical tradition. I mean, philosophy coming from the Greeks is very important in Islam. is is the grounding of Islamic philosophy and what helped Islamic philosophy hold and develop the Greek philosophy until it sort of returned to the to Europe, um, mediated and changed in many ways by the great Muslim philosophers in the Middle Ages. But so, yes, you have sort of traditional uh, religious philosophers who may not necessarily engage with uh, 
secular philosophers, either in the Arab world or Muslim world or the West for that matter. But then of course you have the modern Arab philosophical tradition, which is inseparable from Europe because all the, since the 19th century, they were going and studying in Europe. They were studying in France. They were studying in Germany. They were learning, they were engaging with the best minds that Europe had to offer already, you know, before Nietzsche was even on the scene. So I don't even think you can talk about something like a Arab or Islamic philosophy that's divorced, or even Iranian philosophy for that matter. All of the great philosophers of the last century come, and even before coming out of any of the countries in the Middle East and North Africa that in any way were dealing with non, just non-religious uh, topics, were engaging, you know, were engaging the philosophy of the day in Europe, um, mm. even as they were bringing in their own traditions too. So it was kind of a one-way thing. They, because of the power imbalance, they would engage the West, but of course only the most, you know, far-thinking Western uh, scholars would actually engage directly with the contemporary. Uh, philosophers of the region, but yeah, they used Nietzsche. They they used Marx, of course. They used uh, they were constantly arguing about Hegel, Kant. The whole the whole canon was part of their canon. Um, the main thing really was 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 uh, existentialism became very important because of of uh, Sartre, and of course Sartre is extremely influenced by Nietzsche. Um, and in North Africa, that became very important. So you have a lot of North African philosophers who are engaging with Nietzsche through Sartrean existentialism. And then you have some of the great uh, Eastern Arab philosophers from Lebanon and other, other locations who also are engaging Nietzsche, but often through Francophone literature, because that was their natural mm. language, so to speak, because you know so many of them were French colonies. So he was there, and, and that, that interaction was always there. And of course, you had a kind of Arab fascism that develops in the 30s and 40s because it spread. And so the they would- bath, bath parties and stuff. And like others, that. which of course would take the same, make the same mistakes about what Nietzsche was talking about with certain concepts that happened in Europe. But then you also have uh, much more progressive left-wing philosophers. And then you have a whole Arab existentialist tradition. And there's, you know, there's an incredible book. I, I, I have it somewhere. So I can't put my eyes on it right now, but I, I know it's behind another book somewhere uh, that came out in the last two years, basically about Nietzsche, Nietzsche in the Arab world, which uh, by uh, by um, a good friend of mine, Jens Hansen, uh, who's an amazing scholar and uh, from, I think, University of Toronto. And, you know, he showed how important Nietzsche is to the 20th century Arab intellectual traditions. Interesting. So it, it seems like, yeah, in some ways, Nietzsche is just sort of in the oxygen in every philosophical tradition um, after him. I mean, even the ones that have kind of tried to ignore him. Um, it, ultimately, I mean, like Adorno, for example, um, who you brought up earlier, um, there's a lot of ways in which he's critical of Nietzsche and, you know, Nietzsche's um, outlook on a lot of aspects about you know, perhaps human nature or mm -hmm. state, but at the same time, it's like you, you can't you can't deny the the power or the uh, the just the magnitude of Nietzsche's critique on things like you know absolute truth or um, absolute morality or um, the rejection of metaphysics and naturally Nietzsche would be you know every philosophical tradition kind of has to answer Nietzsche because it it's 
It's one of the he most is, fundamental critiques. So it's like if you don't answer it, it's a glaring <laughs> problem. He, you know, he's the Black Sabbath of philosophy. You know, yeah, in, there you go. Yeah. I mean, you can't. You, how would anyone not like early? You know, the classic Black Sabbath. But and there's even periods of Black Sabbath, like with Dio. You know, like the periods of Nietzsche in a way, actually. But you know, you can't think about metal without Sabbath. In the same way, you can't think about philosophy. Uh, can you know philosophy of the last century without Nietzsche? I think what's really interesting. I think about this a lot to prepare for this. This you know our talking is if if you talk about the diagnosis of the illness of the Enlightenment, the modern Enlightenment, and the modern capitalist system, then he and people in the Frankfurt School are really lockstep. And in some ways, I mean, you've shown his critique of capitalism in general, and they're coming out of a Marxist tradition, is really very similar to Marx's. Even though they weren't in communication with each other, Marx is a bit older, but he could see what Marx could see, because people who were that intelligent and that 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 sensitive in their eyesight. It's like they had eight eyes instead of two. They could see so much more. Um, they could see what was happening. Weber would be another guy. But, you know, Nietzsche, I mean, Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud are really the foundation of 20th century philosophy in any meaningful sense. And so he was so crucial for the way the Frankfurt School diagnosed the problem. Where they separate is, okay, now what? And there, they still come out of a Marxist tradition. Their goal is to have a collective transformation of society towards something that is more egalitarian, less, you know, less colonial, less exploitative, et cetera. And they come out of a Marxist tradition, which is ultimately teleological. And of course, Nietzsche would not support a teleological view, and he wouldn't support, uh, at least in his own you know, epistemological grounding, that kind of direction. So that's where they can't. So it's where what do you do? And it's not what do you do like his, you know, that Zarathustra, that kind of joyful or his kind of gay science part would be very similar to what they want to do. And in fact, people like Marcuse very much took up the ideas of the gay science as part of their as inspiring them about, OK, how do we defeat this kind of horrific violence of the system we're all living in? But Still, you know, ultimately they're trying to, as Marx said, the goal isn't to just interpret the world, it's to change it, it's to transform it to something better. And that's where, of course, it gets a bit dicey because what is better Nietzsche wants, Nietzsche is not exactly, you know, supporting what is normally understood to be equality and democracy in, in the ways, you know, of course, he's also very provocative, so no one knows what he really would one what place he would have liked to have lived in but he clearly it's harder to follow him down that road about what do we do but in the critique level it's there is no frankfurt school without nietzsche in that aspect and there's no marxism in the 20th century in any useful sense without uh without nietzsche it's just he is you know he's there he's just the, half the dna yeah i think about his comments in the antichrist about how the you know the weak and ill-constituted uh, shall perish, and we should even the first principle of our charity is that we should even help them to do so. Right. But Nietzsche right. is weak, weak and ill-constituted. Isn't um, that funny? Is and what does it, he right. really mean by that? And is it, right? Is he mean right. I mean, it, it, killing, if you know, take I mean, it literally, something. Right. If you take it literally and physiologically, which in many t cases Nietzsche I think is willing to be almost like you said provocative to take things very you know I, I think of the way he talks about how um you know the the priest originally was like a um 
a pure person, but in a very literal sense, like they don't eat dirty food. They don't sleep with the right. um, people of the lowest, lower strata. They don't get blood on them. They don't all of these things. And it was a very literal hygienic practice. And if you look historically, um, you know, you mentioned Lao Tzu earlier, part of the Taoist tradition, a lot of Taoist like height, hygienic practices are actually, um, you know, that the, the Taoist sages did do seem like they were like aesthetic in a sense of like a very physical, literal sense. And then you, you look at mm-hmm. sort of the conception of the good in the ancient Greeks, it's a very embodied physical form mm-hmm. of the good. Um, and so you could take what Nietzsche says there in the physical sense, right? But then it, you can also look at, um, you know, his entire career as a philosopher, right? Um, that his, he's been putting forward this whole message that, oh, your moral arguments aren't actually going to alter the fact that, you know, the good of the hawk and the good of the little lamb are fundamentally right. mutually exclusive with one another. Right. They're just sort of a post hoc narration upon it. The doers inseparable, exactly. inseparable right. from the deed. But then why are you writing all this philosophy? What is the, As you're in this realm. Right. right. Yeah. It's like you're in this problem. realm of abstraction and right. your, your entire contribution to the world is in the world of ideas. It's in the world of, um, you know, uh, these uh, vectors of cultural ideas or something like that. And yet at other times he seems to say, well, that's just a superficial surface and skin. It doesn't really actually move anything. And so it's, it's very interesting because I almost think like that entire apparent paradox or contradiction might be a sort of like teaching in and of itself and kind of like a Zen way uh, that Nietzsche is sort of on the one level, maybe he is actually making those points, but then you kind of zoom out and you say, okay, but who was the person uh, Nietzsche is will be the would be the first one to tell you. Pay attention to who is telling you uh, a given it's philosophical a damn argument. Shame no one, lived, no one. It's a damn shame he didn't have you know an extra bedroom in Torino or wherever he was. You know he didn't have people coming to stay with him who could disciples, so to speak, people who would you know the way the Frankfurt School did. And I think part of the reason the Frankfurt School was a school, you know, was had a place, a location was they knew that this this is this level of complexity of thought you can't just write it out and put out a book it's got a it's almost like music it's it, in fact it is an art it is the gay science in a way it's it's you have to pass it on master the disciple in a way it, it's so difficult and complex you it's only it only can be passed on and it has so many levels it's it's just a shame that he spent so much time alone i don't think he was a misanthrope at all i know he had friends and amazing correspondence but it is a shame that he didn't have students. It is a shame he couldn't, he didn't, someone didn't fund a little institute in the Alps for him where people could go study with him because we could have figured, I think a lot of these mis- potential misconceptions would have been cleared up. And his provocations, again, to me, to, just to go back to the metal analogy, sometimes he's like Cannibal Corpse, you know, or Napalm Death, you know, or or Anthrax. It's like, the goal is you can't get the point across unless you're really being sonically, visually, orally, in the you know verbal sense, so provocative that you just shock people so that they, like a Zen cone, sometimes the master has to hit you on the head to break you out of, of the frame you're in and let you get to a higher state. So I think probably that we could read it that way, but that's not necessarily very useful if you're trying to develop a praxis, a, a politically engaged praxis to fight back against a racist American state or a fascist state in Germany, that level of abstraction is too much. 
So that's where I think he becomes less useful for the school, even though literally their entire structure, epistemological structure, is utterly inconceivable without him. Yeah. Well, and I think it's also part of the aspect is that I think, I think first and foremost on Nietzsche's, his goals, right, are, mm -hmm. I think he's very, because he is so fixated on you are, you get this life and it's an embodied life, you know, life isn't yeah. some abstract thing um, that exists in the aggregate. It's like you are going to live this one life and, um, you know, eternal return. Imagine if that is an eternal fact, everything that happens to you and you do in this life, you need to make it uh, justified, right? And so it's that yeah. seems to be the first thing on his mind. And when that's your concern, um, you're sort of not as focused on leaving behind a really coherent, neat source of praxis, right? It's almost like defiant to that because it's basically um, all of that, you know, uh, it is it is actually probably the greatest tension I see between Nietzsche and Marx. Um, you know, the, the point is not just to interpret history, but to change it. Um, or, you know, we might think of, uh, you know, we were kind of criticizing like the Marxist-Leninists or the Soviets earlier, but the, the sort of, I think it was a Soviet slogan that our goal is the happiness of the future generations of mankind. Um, something to that yeah. nature. It's like Nietzsche in some sense would almost say, uh, you know, for, for all intents and purposes, as far as you're concerned, the future generations of mankind don't even exist. You're, it's like ultimate design, like thrownness, you know, like you are here in this uh, blink of an eye. It's almost mm. absurd in a way, right? And you have mm. to make it right and good that you're here for this time. And in some sense that what that might entail is um, leaving something behind for the happiness of all mankind after you. But it's it's sort of like the first orienting principle is um, living your life as it is, right? And that's where um, I don't know. I that to me seems like the greatest tension. It, it, but as you say, you could still use what he provides epistemologically is so invaluable. Well, and what he provides. Think, oh, sorry, sorry. Go on. No, I think. Don't you think that's why if you if there's two two philosophical developments that he influences. One is is certainly Western Marxism through the Frankfurt School, etc. But the other is existentialism, which is in some ways, even though it comes out of Marxism in a way through Sartre and others, it's it's the exact opposite because it's very individualist. And and right. And yeah. then the Frankfurt School is still a more traditional, you know, Marxian, if not directly Marxist, uh, goal of, you know, trying to create collective social change together. Um, where I, and, and I think also the fact that so much of the Frankfurt School was Jewish, and despite that moment in Weimar Germany where they thought they were free, they were seeing anti-Semitism come, they knew they were the other, they knew they were the, on the wrong side of the bloodline, so to speak, whereas Nietzsche didn't have to think about that, even though, of course, he had a very interesting view of Jews, much better than most people, and certainly much better than the way he was distorted. I think he, as an individualist, someone who didn't, it's not, it's not surprising to me he has these views and also left the university, left an organized right. place where he could have created an institute, where he could have brought people like him together, where he could have trained a generation or two if he had lived longer, but at least a generation of young scholars to carry out his work. You don't have any interest in any of that, clearly. Whereas for the Frankfurt School folks, they want, they created literally a school. They had a political program, as confusing as it might have been and how it divided at a certain point, but they at least all could agree, we want to try to stop fascism and we want to try to stop capitalism and create a more fair, 
non-racist, non-sexist, non-patriarchal society. Whereas Nietzsche had none of those, you know, he just, that just wasn't his interest. He, I, that's just not who he was. And you can't blame him. It's just, that's not who he was. So, but it is who they were. And that's where I think they part because they had still a, poli a directly political project that was utterly dependent on Nietzsche's critique uh, and his materialist critique. You know, I mean, Nietzsche was a materialist, really, right? His whole truth and, and life being em embodied, as you said, is, is so crucial, which is why he can go with Marx so well up to a certain point, up until the time to do something, right? Right. Uh, to change it. So he's just utterly... You know, I, I don't think anyone can read Marx without Nietzsche today. I don't think we could understand Marx without Nietzsche because he's kind of filling in the blanks. That to me is how, you know, most people I know read Marx today is is with Nietzsche in a way. We've talked about Marx and Nietzsche as sort of those foundations of the Frankfurt School. The third uh, major component you said is Freud, who, of course, is influenced by Nietzsche. Um, is the main... Although he denied it at some points, he tried to deny it, which I don't really understand why. Mm. I think it was just his ego, funnily enough. Um, yeah, per perhaps maybe, you know, I, I, I shouldn't be getting my ideas from a philosopher because I want psychology to be a hard science. Maybe it had something to do with it. Also, you know, Nietzsche was not really well understood at that time. So pretty much anything until after the World Wars, I think Nietzsche was probably... The interpretations until of Kaufman. what was <laughs> until Yeah, basically until Kaufman. Basically until Kaufman. But, but, you know, I think in German, there were some people who knew what was going on. I think there was, because Freud, I, I was doing some reading on this recently. I think Martin Jay, you know, in his, his work on the Frankfurt School also talks a lot about Freud. I mean, one of the founders of the Frankfurt School is Eric Fromm. Eric Fromm worked directly with Freud. And um, so Freud and the Frankfurt School are very tied together, even though he didn't meet them. But it, but it, there's clear evidence that Freud talks about Nietzsche. He says, you know, we got this from Nietzsche. His idea of sublimation, you know, clearly comes from Nietzsche. His idea of the instincts and, and, and this idea that there is that the, the drives, this focus on the drives and the will to power as ultimately not just a will in the in the subject sense of, of age, you know, someone with agency, but but a more fundamental drive that that you know that's at the source of everything this comes from Nietzsche for sure I mean that 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 is undisputable and and Freud even in quotes him at certain points so uh well that yeah. that's an aspect of, of of Freud that I'm kind of curious about with the Frankfurt School and actually Eric Fromm is the perfect example of that mm. um because he wrote uh, Anatomy of Human Destructiveness mm -hmm. uh, for example where he, um, one of the, uh, I guess, books out of the, is, is Fromm considered Frankfurt School? I guess that's oh, a yeah, book from the Frankfurt the School that I've read. Okay, cool. No, no, uh, he, he is, um, he was one of the original guys. What's really interesting is that when Adorno comes in a few years after it's founded is right when Fromm leaves. Not for, not because they didn't get along at all, funnily enough, but that's not why Fromm I can left. see that, actually. He I can see that. To, yeah. They, they seem to be like kind of like fire and water in, in some ways. Um, yeah, like... or fire and other fire. <laughs> but... <laughs> well, maybe, yeah. Well, but but I'm wondering because in, in Anatomy of Human Destructiveness, I mean, a lot of what From I feel, is trying to do is like, in a way, maybe there's a lot of 
Um, you know, the way Nietzsche talked about silent hostility towards Christianity in his first work, I think there's mm-hmm. a lot of silent hostility towards Nietzsche uh, insofar as he, Nietzsche makes a lot of claims, you know, like you were just saying that we kind of get through uh, Freud, they become more mainstream of like this, um, your unconscious drives, um, drives to dominate uh, to, you know, with Freud, obviously, uh, winning, you know, sex, sex, sexual reproduction is a big deal, but it kind of derived from Nietzsche's idea of like this will to domination and exploitation mm-hmm. and to to climb the hierarchy so on and so forth that we're often doing even as we're consciously rationalizing around it or or, or putting a, a good moral um, gloss or uh, in, intellectual or rational gloss on what we're doing right whereas Fromm seems to be in a way his method of critique of that isn't to attack the argument directly it's to show all of these cultures from around the world many of them from africa where um they don't seem to be oriented around this like same um innately like destructive or exploitative like drives right um that maybe nietzsche is like bound within his own perspective of looking at the history of like western um uh, states and cultures that have been driven by this. And it is this not actually a human universal. Um, maybe there are um, limiting factors in how somebody like Nietzsche might have come up with his whole view of like what this will to power thing of what human beings are really like. Um, whereas it seems like somebody like Adorno, and then even you mentioned Gramsci, seem to be more willing to go with this idea that well, yeah, that's true. There are these exceptions to the rule, but when we look at across human history, like there, there do seem to be these tendencies, right? I don't, I don't know if I'm phrasing it maybe the best way, but could you maybe speak to? Um, is do you think there's sort of a difference there? And like maybe I guess I guess I'm really asking about human nature, about how the um, the view of human nature coming from people like Nietzsche and Freud um, is differently interpreted by figures within the Frankfurt School. Well, Fromm is really interesting because he he is similar to um, to Gershom Scholem, another early member associated with the school, and even Walter Benjamin, who sadly died trying to escape from the Nazis, who was another of the absolute core people who was also utterly, you know, I mean, Walter Benjamin was completely in you know in indebted to to Nietzsche, um, but Fromm becomes much more spiritual. Um, from like Gershom Sholem and like um, like Walter Benjamin in many ways takes a much more spiritual turn, which is in a way more Nietzschean. You know, they can almost feel like the new dawn, like Zarathustra. The, Nietzsche was in this way, while he was very much a materialist, he was also deeply spiritual through the recognition of the embodiment of us, because that has a spiritual implication that Nietzsche, I think, celebrates and, and makes so powerful. And I think, I think, the 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 other people who stayed in the school, uh, especially Adorno and Horkheimer, had trouble. They had trouble dealing with that, that. And so what they took from what they took of that aspect of Nietzsche's philosophy was kind of the way Freud developed this idea of sublimation as a kind of adaptive channeling of the drives, and and Nietzsche's. Nietzsche's anticipatory maybe critique of that by showing how so much the time sublimation can actually be repression, repressing the good drives through Christianity and, you know, 
bad bad values and all of that what 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 which he's critiquing beyond good and evil in the mid 60s i can't think of the exact year but uh maybe 65 66 herbert marcuse publishes eros and civilization and the subtitle of that book is if i remember correctly a philosophical inquiry into freud right uh maybe it's actually earlier in fact i'm thinking of another of of his counter revolution and revolt which is a bit later but so he's he is he is trying to see how do we reclaim freud and eros and 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 bring love and joy back to the struggle against capitalism and against the enlightenment the instrumental rationality of the enlightenment which is so deadly both physically and spiritually deadly and he's able to do that and he also brings nietzsche into this conversation. And, and again, Nietzsche was trying to do this, the, the gay science and the whole idea of, of this kind of life-affirming part of Nietzsche's philosophy that kind of gets lost in the dourness of the Frankfurt School, of, of Horkheimer and Adorno, who ultimately were so, they were just unable to find the, it's strange, they were unable to find the joy in the struggle. So they kind of seemingly, at least the critique is they retreated into what they call a negative dialectic, a just constant imminent critique of reason. And you just have to keep critiquing it because there's no resolution. The dialectic never ends until finally someday in the future, maybe someone will figure out how to finally put a stake in the heart of capitalism. But for, you know, Marcuse is like, well, the hell with that. I want to have fun. I want to enjoy life and have some love and <laughs> stuff. Listen to some rock and roll music. He's in, you know, he's in Santa Cruz, for God's sakes, or, or San Diego in the 60s. So he wasn't about to sit around doing nothing in, in some, you know, play in, in uh, Frankfurt. And um, he wanted to, uh, you know, he wanted to, uh, he wanted to bring these together. And I think he brings back the Nietzsche, the joy that's also inherent in Nietzsche's philosophy when you read him, I think you must have felt that way. When you read Nietzsche, you feel joy in a weird way. Yeah, absolutely. Even if you don't know what he's saying half the time. I didn't figure out half of what he's saying until I was, you know, until 20 years after I started. Who can understand Nietzsche when you're 14? But I felt joy listening to him. It's like I couldn't understand Beethoven when I was 14, what the harmonic structure was, but I felt joy or, or right. Miles Davis, you know, or bebop. But I sure knew I felt joy when I heard them. And I think in the same way, he Nietzsche makes you feel joy, the joy of just your mind just exploding. That's where Freud also that's where they they took that focus and, and develop and parts of them were more engaged and didn't retreat, so to speak, into the ivory tower who stayed in the struggle. They found that joy, and Nietzsche was crucial to that. If what I answered is, your question, I apologize. No, I think he, I think he did. I'm I'm just what I'm what I'm kind of wondering about because I I would perceive I I definitely feel that that the uh, the joy the almost ecstasis of it um, mm. maybe is the way to, to put it. But I guess what it is is like you're the the way you put it. I think is perfect of like Horkheimer and uh, Adorno, the dourness, uh, the sort of because you would be right if you're if you're in this struggle against fascism and then you perceive that in human beings there seems to be like this tendency towards exploitation and domination not only baked into the culture but it's sort of like something that you have to permanently bring this this negative dialectic approach to critique constantly right um it would be like kind of a, a depressing realization in a way right uh, if you if there's like a tendency to 
um, you know, I remember uh, it was it was one of the uh, members of the West German radicals in the 60s who was being interviewed. I don't know if you're familiar with that whole incident where there was like the extra parliamentary uh, opposition. They actually went and trained with the Palestinians. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, um, the Biedermannhof gang. There was a bunch of the yeah, but, brigades, a bunch of the those. More I, I remember groups. seeing an, an interview with one of them talking about how, you know, the Fedayeen fighters they were with they pointed at pictures of Hitler and they were like, he was a good man, right? Because mm -hmm. he'd killed the Jews who are our enemies now in, mm -hmm. you know, the Israel Palestine. And I just remember one of the, I guess, founders of that, the Beiter Beinhoff cell or uh, mm -hmm. pronouncing the name right, saying that they had a realization in that moment that he, the way he put it is we're made of the same stuff as the fascists and that that is exists within all of us right and, and that in a they, way that's what adorno and or that's why he he just was right paralyzed him, yes exactly that's that's what i'm kind of getting at is that it, i can kind of see that to me it seems like the question is like do you think that that it's kind of the question i was getting at with eric from earlier too is that it's almost like from is looking maybe spiritually for like something to, to find a bedrock that is not just that same yes. will to power, right? Absolutely. Whereas Adorno is like, no, it, it is that will to power. We have to continually critique and question it because that thing is within us and will rise up again. I guess maybe this will be a good question because we should probably start wrapping up here soon because I think we're running a little late. But maybe where do you fall on that uh, that question? Of what, well, what I think the you made me think of something really interesting, which I'd never thought of before, between Nietzsche versus the Frankfurt School. Nietzsche is thinking of individual transformation. So he can afford to feel joy because the only person he's got to worry about is himself. The only, mm. As hard as that is, the only person who has to be willing to live this thing over and over again with all the negative consequences, all the pain and suffering is him, right? Whereas the Frankfurt School people and, and those engaged in the struggle, they have to rely on everyone else. So, you know, I could see Adorno saying, well, that's fine to think like you're Zarathustra in a forest somewhere and that's all you got to worry about. We're trying to fight capitalism. Right. <laughs> so it's... That, it's not the same thing. So yes, if everyone could go through their own personal, you know, Nietzschean Dionysian transformation, that would be lovely, but it's not going to happen. The, and, and whenever we do try to let, let it, let the, you know, it's like having a dog, you, you let the, you let go of the, um, the uh, leash a little bit, you exactly what you were just saying. Suddenly, Hitler was a good guy, you know. Yeah, the, be suddenly, the beast starts right. running fast. Suddenly you know, the, the beast right, within. The, right, the left and the right suddenly converge, and it always turns out they converge around something like a charismatic leader that it blames someone else that you know turns sublimation into repression, but in a way that is very attractive to people and and. That's why they were scared. But for people, but the but for others, I think, and Fromm, of course, Fromm also, he goes more into the personal, into psychology, into spiritualism, because if you can't change the politics, at least you can, at least you can attain some kind of joy through a personal spiritual enlightenment, which I think Zarathustra represents. I think uh, for Fromm's, uh, you know, his study of Hasidism, which is a mystical in many ways tradition, or if you think of, you know, the black church in America, um, in all these ways, you, you, you and all of these places, music is central, right? 
And so, and I think even in the metal scene, you know, getting back to what we were talking about, my friends, you know, across the region who lived in Iran during the war, Lebanon during the civil war, or other places like that, you know, they would literally put metal on to drown out the bombs or the AK-47s or the firefights, wow. you know. So because you can't put on, you know, Bob Dylan singing with his acoustic guitar and harmonica ain't going to drown out mortars you know talk to people sadly in ukraine right now see what they're listening to to drown it out it's probably not john Baez, as much as i love john Baez, it's probably rage against the machine right um right. because you need a sonic bomb to take care to counter that and so the music the catharsis of the art right with you know all the all the ways nietzsche talks about art is as uh, uh, you know this incredible affective power and the power to somehow create a truth, even if all truths are lies, this truth is at least a truth you can run with and use and keep you going and maybe bring you some joy. And that's what um, that's in a way where Nietzsche supersedes still in a way the Frankfurt School, because he at least gives you joy. He lead, he can lead you to joy, whereas the Frankfurt School. Um, if you if you just sit around listening to Schoenberg or 12-tone classical music all the time, maybe it's your thing. It's not mine. It's a little bit hard. But I'll just tell yeah. you, I know we got to end, but, but you know, I wrote a piece called Would Adorno Headbang. Nice, because, nice title. Because I saw the way this thing called the aura returned to music when I would see these metal shows in, in places in Cairo and other places, the absolute cathartic, spiritual joy of people at these shows of course you see it at a metal show here too but it's even more there right uh, i saw iron maiden the first time they played in arab world in dubai in 2007 i was there people were crying like like the mahdi the messiah you know the second coming was there it was it was the most spiritual thing in my entire life to see an iron maiden perform in dubai in 2007 I, that's great i was gonna about to ask you like what your top as like a final question what your top experience of seeing a show in the middle east or in, in that whole I, world? well is, there's, is it that there's is it there there's two things is iron maiden in dubai okay. was just that that's that's something i'll take with me the show i organized in cairo um, because just to see that audience. And then the other one was um, at this festival called the Boulevard Festival in 2008 uh, in, in Casablanca, you know, huge festival. Uh, I played with Lazy Wall, my friends, and, and it's just, uh, and another festival I played at in 2007, actually in, in Istanbul, the Barisha Rock for Peace with a bunch of Iranian metalheads, a metal band that I worked with, which they're now mostly in, in, in L.A., and to see these, you know, 30, 40,000 kids from these cultures, just totally a sea of headbanging. He was like, man, this is real. This is energy. You yeah. know, this is that Dionysian, like, this is what you live for as a musician, right? Do, do you have a favorite city in the Middle East, aside from the, the concerts? It's really hard because I've, I've been very fortunate to travel to a lot. Yeah. In a weird way, Baghdad is one one of my favorite cities because it's suffered oh, wow. so much in recent years okay. in, in the recent times, but it, it's such a rich tradition, but Cairo, there's only one, you know, Cairo is, is just the most insane out of control city. It used to be my favorite city. It's, it's gotten a lot more uh, closed down as and conservative as the regime has really cracked mm. down the last five or six years. But yeah, I think, you know, it's like saying, do you like, you know, um, you know, do you like Austin better than 
New York or better than Seattle. I mean, every, every no, Seattle's, has Seattle's the best out of those three. <laughs> no hesitation. Sorry. <laughs> depends, on, depends on how many zeros are in your bank account. Probably. I guess. Yeah. But, well, I, know, I like I to visit Seattle. Right. It's my favorite to visit. I, I wouldn't try to live there. I don't think. I would say that about a lot of cities, you know, anywhere, but also in the region. No, they're just each one has something to teach you. And yeah. the musicians in each of them are so unique and yet so interconnected that it's just it's a pleasure to be able to 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 spend my professional life being able to study them and work with them and play with them and create with them as well as think about them. It's just been an honor. And of course, I can't even imagine how anyone would have done that without the work of these guys, you know, these people and women, you know, we didn't get you to talk about, sadly, uh, any women, uh, people from the school because it was dominated by men. But of course, people like Hannah Arendt were also very much yeah. part of the school and um, uh, very much tied to it. And these discussions influence a whole you know, generations, again, through people like Angela Davis, who studied with them, literally, so her, her philosophy, and, and people, she said directly when I did her books, when she did her books on blues and blues singers and women singers, um, she, she literally, her grounding in that was her study with Adorno in Frankfurt, who taught her how to look at art. So, you know, their, their influence, even though they were largely men, they had a huge influence on feminism, um, on critical theory, on feminist theory, people like Judith Butler and others. So they had a much, and even in the Middle East, a lot of women scholars who were engaging Nietzsche already in the 20s and 30s. And uh, Maisie Ada is one, a Lebanese-Egyptian scholar. If people were interested, they could look up her writing on Nietzsche. Awesome. Well, uh, we'll put all as much of this as we can in the show notes. When I go through and, and listen again and edit, I will put as much as I can in the show notes. So, um, Mark, is there anything you wanted to shout out or uh, plug uh, before we sign off? Anything you're working on? Anything you have coming up? Um, oh, or gosh. Just... I, I don't. I mean, I would just help people to go and, you know, look up some great metal from, you know, okay. from the Middle East and North Africa and Africa and just expose yourself and keep listening. We'll, we'll, to we'll link to your books as well, too. Oh, um, so well, that'd be can, good. Thank you. Because I'm sure that's also a wealth of information about a lot of those groups. And that's, I mean, yeah, that'll be the place sure. to, to find out if, if anyone's, I'm sure there'll be some people who are titillated and want to hear some, uh, well, that'll they be want to hear the, the sounds to, of the Metal I'm East. I'm easy to find. Yeah, the Metal East. Damn, I never I was waiting all episode. To, oh to, my yeah. God. 20 years <laughs> I've been looking at that and I never thought of that term. So you, that, that just shows you. How it's yours now. You can learn. No, no. Uh, please, no, please I, take it. I don't. I don't. Steal. If anyone Only should take it, it should be you. Um, I will use it, but I will cite you. Don't worry. And okay, show. wonderful. All right. Uh, well, it's been great, thank you for uh, Mark. Me. Thank you so much. Yeah, of course. Um, already. Uh, I look forward so to hearing more of your podcast. I learned so much from them whenever I, whenever a new one comes out. Thank, thank you. Hopefully, uh, I'll continue to to um, have new and interesting things to say as we keep yeah. going. Yeah, don't Alrighty. get too successful as a musician, please, so that you can't do this. <laughs> I'm, I'll try not to. All right, yeah. signing off, everybody. If you enjoyed the Nietzsche podcast or found it helpful, you can visit us and support the show at patreon.com slash untimelyreflections. The link is in the description. Or just share the show 
with any of your friends that you think might enjoy it or on social media. Thank you for your support.